Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. So it seems over the last year or so there's been a lot of conversation about what's happening in education, and in particular, uh, one of the things that's caught my attention is the conversation around SEL, or social-emotional learning, and just that's part of a more general conversation about what is happening in schools. And I am a big believer in if you have a question about something, you go to the source and you find out what's happening. And I've done that a number of times with a number of different people. So today I brought in somebody who is an administrator at the seventh grade level. Melissa Evans is the assistant principal at HMS 7 and also the athletic director, which that's a whole different beast, (laughs) I imagine. But we're going to talk a little bit about middle school, uh, education, students, and what's going on. So thanks for coming in and and recording with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. I'm excited. So tell me a little bit about, well, first tell me about your background in education, why you wanted to do it, how long you've been doing it, where you started, and kind of go through that a little bit. Um, Sure. So initially I was pursuing a degree in social work. I met my now husband who was working in education and was able to see the impact he could have with students and the relationships he could build um, and thought it was really cool. I grew up in Hutchinson, went through the Catholic school system here, had a great experience, um, but school is a lot different for me going through a Catholic school system as opposed to going to public school. So I don't think I fully grasped all the opportunities that public schools can offer. Um, So getting a firsthand view of it through Clayton was really, really cool. Um, And I realized that that was kind of the door that I wanted to walk through to be able to make the impact I wanted to with kids, because ultimately that's who I wanted to work with through social work as well. Um, So made the switch to education and pursued a degree actually in elementary education, student taught at Morgan in fourth grade and I told myself that is absolutely what I wanted fourth grade was dream job Um, and prior to student teaching I actually did quite a bit of subbing and took a long-term sub position at HMS 8 while I was still working on my degree so it was actually really interesting because I was a well I guess I was an eighth grade science teacher and then on my planning periods I was going to Plum Creek and I was teaching social studies to first graders for an internship while I was still working on my coursework for my degree. And then I would drive back to HMSA and do more science. And then on my other planning period, I would go back to Plum Creek and teach math to fifth graders. Um, and then when I finished up that, I would drive back down to HMS7 and I was coaching volleyball at the time. So I had exposure to a lot of different grade levels and I thought fourth grade was what I wanted, but the more I was with the older kids, like my eighth graders, I thought, man, this is what I really want. Um, So when I was finishing up my student teaching, um, I was approached about a high school math position. And so I thought, well, you know, the older kids is what I was kind of leaning towards. So I went ahead and gambled on myself because you have to pass a praxis that gives you that endorsement. Um, So I took a praxis to get endorsed to teach high school mathematics and taught algebra Hutch High for four years um, while I was coaching at HMS 7 and then I started my degree in education leadership and ended up using it a lot sooner than I planned. I hadn't really planned on taking the position I have now but I have found through my career um, kind of when doors open and you want to walk through you walk through and I have zero regrets so far. So in th- that's amazing <laughs> to think about that. But one of the things I want to unpack, because I know that people have to wonder about this, it, what would, I think most people would say, 
fourth graders, eighth graders. The, I mean, eighth <laughs> graders are kind of notorious for a number of things, but chief among them not being maybe as adorable as fourth graders. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think they're still pretty adorable. Uh, the biggest appeal to me was eighth grade, I felt like, or the middle school level in general, because I see it with my seventh graders a lot, too. Um, they catch on to sarcasm a little bit more. Their sense of humor is kind of developing in their personality. And they still, I think, I think we have this notion that they hit seventh grade or they hit those teen years and they're instantly... Um, kind of jaded towards adults like we don't want to talk to adults we're too cool and for whatever reason um, I feel like I'm able to connect with them pretty well they are this perfect blend of wanting to kind of build that independence and they feel like I can do this on my own and they're starting to be a little bit more stubborn but in a good way um, but still need that love like mm -hmm. in the mornings um, it's funny because I will stand out front in our building and I really, the first time I did it, I really anticipated a lot of like, what is she doing? Why are we high-fiving them? But um, every day standing out front of my building and seeing seventh graders and giving them high fives and telling them, good morning, I'm so glad you're here. And I mean, they love it and they will, I've noticed there are kids that will kind of hang back and wait for their turn to high five me. They won't just walk by or mm -hmm. if I'm not there one day in the morning, they'll come find me the next day and be like, Mrs. Evans, where were you? And so it's that perfect blend of still childlike, that's still I still need love and attention but also like I'm ready to start building my independence and I think that's such a critical period that I think I don't know that there's a cooler job than the job I have to be able to impact and be a supportive person for him in that time well it's probably good that somebody like you is in that <laughs> position at that time in their lives because it really is I think and, and I'm trying to think back you know to my experience and and others that I know it, it, you really are in that time period trying to kind of figure yourself out a little bit, right? You're kind of making the transition from childhood to adulthood. And that's a, that adolescence period is a, quite a while. Um, and it's wrought with a lot of challenges. And so I, I, I haven't thought about it like that before, but that would be a, a difficult time. And they probably need certain people in their lives that, and I'm thinking back to the teachers I had in that, and that was in that period of time that I really connected with them. And that meant a lot to me at that time. It's it's cool because we see a lot of times you, I follow a lot of education um, people and hashtags and things on Twitter and Instagram. And um, one that always stuck out to me was be who you needed at that time. Like when you are around kids, be who you needed when you were 13 and making the transition out of the classroom into the role I have now, I feel like it gives me a lot more flexibility to really do that. So sometimes who they need is an ear to talk about struggles they're having at home or with their friends. Sometimes it's help with math if they're an office aide. One time it was a girl who was so embarrassed. She refused to go to class because she had, came to school with a big old zit on her forehead. And so it was spend 10 minutes in my office using some concealer to cover her <laughs> zit. And, you know, and I just think what a cool, what a cool opportunity for me to be in a position to help her have the confidence to go to class and finish her day because a a lot of times what you'll see in education, you'll see behaviors from kiddos, for example, non-compliance. She refused to go to her class. And so it's really easy to just go straight discipline mode. Okay, you're not complying ISS or whatever consequence people would assign to that. But when you have the flexibility and the time to get to the root of the problem, a lot of times that behavior is communication for an unmet need or an issue that they're just having trouble verbalizing. Um, so I love that. I love being able to do that. And that kind of brings, that's a good transition into uh, one of the things I want to talk about, because 
I think there is a previous model from years ago that says if a student isn't doing what you want or a student is dis displaying behavior issues, then, then the appropriate response is punishment, taking something away or doing something that forces compliance. And I think over the years, there has been a recognition that behavior is usually tied to something else. And over the years, that's been a little more formalized into our curriculum or how we're dealing with students. I know I've been involved in some uh, uh, projects that talk about trauma-informed uh, trauma education, but we're now using trauma-informed uh, processes for a number of things. So, and that kind of that kind of gets to the the social emotional learning part, right? And you and I talked a little bit about this beforehand. But when you said that about behavior is usually an indication of an unmet need, talk about how that transition has happened over the years and how we've come to recognize that if we look past the defiance, we look past the behavior, and then try to identify what's underneath that. Why have we done that in education? Why has that become part of what we're doing? You know, I think um, the longer I'm in education, the more I see so much of what we do in our building is so similar just to the world in general. Um, we talk a lot in educational jargon and words that really aren't applicable in the real world. But when you look at what we're doing, it really is just taking things that people do in the real world and do it within our building as well. So the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is being reactive versus being proactive. And that's something we talk with our kids a lot about um, within our SEL curriculum. And the notion that if we are just continually reacting to these behaviors, we're never actually addressing it, right? So think about going to the doctor and if we're constantly just treating symptoms and we're not actually getting to the root cause of the illness, we're going to continue to treat those symptoms. Um, same thing with behaviors. If we're just punishing behaviors, we're not teaching them how to solve it. We're not figuring out what is actually the cause of those behaviors. And so the notion that we don't just want to address a behavior, we want to prevent it. We want to be proactive. Um, I think that's a huge piece of why that push for SEL um, is coming. And I really think it's been coming for a long time. You and I spoke briefly about um, really it's just become more formalized. It's a lot of what we've already been doing. Now there's just so much research that backs it and people who have invested so much time into building these curriculums that make it so much more cohesive, um, that make it more fluid from kindergarten all the way up until 12th grade. Uh, and it just, it makes it a million times easier to address problems to prevent them in the future, if that makes sense. Well, you had told me a story about, was was it voice level zero? Yeah, yeah, can, absolutely. Can you, can you tell people about that and why that, you, you I mean, basically about how that, that continues through all levels of education? Sure. So we talk a lot about common language. Um, and so the example I give you was in terms of classroom management or just school management in general. If you take a kindergartner in USD 308 and you say voice level zero, we're in October. So I, I feel comfortable saying at this point that kindergartner would know voice level zero means you are quiet. I have a kindergartner at home and he knows voice level zero is quiet. Um, and that's a common language. We use that from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. And so what's wonderful about it is when our kiddos come into HMS 7, we don't have to explain what voice level zero means. We don't have to explain what voice level one is. There are all these levels, but they are experiencing that and it's getting kind of pounded into them early on. And so as they move through their schooling within our district, it's that common language that 
makes it so much easier. Everyone's kind of on the same page. And that's really our goal with our SEL curriculums that we're using is that, for example, we do Leader in Me at HMS 7 and several of our elementaries have adopted it too. Um, so for classroom management, we could talk voice level for our SEL, we could say when we tell kiddos, um, we want you to be proactive. If you are going to miss school at the end of the day because you have to leave for an activity, you could be proactive and go see your seventh and eighth hour teachers and find out what you're missing so you don't get behind. So you could do that schoolwork at home and come to school the next day ready to go. Um, and so being able to use common language for SEL to being proactive, think when, when, um, begin with end in mind, all of those things become common language too. And so when you are addressing things, or for example, if we have a kiddo come down to the office and we say, man, what is a skill that we could have used here to prevent this moving forward? A lot of conversations when you are dealing with um, some type of discipline is, and how can we prevent this? How can we be proactive so that next time it doesn't get to this point? Um, and getting kids to think in that way helps address that behavior too moving forward. So it sounds like a lot of it is built around just helping students think, right? And 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 to not just get upset about a situation or to try to, um, I don't know, create something that says, well, I couldn't do this because of X, Y, Z. And, and the effort from your end is to try to talk them through thinking. What, what could you have done or what steps could you have done to manage this better? Or what could you do to manage it better in the future? Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love I love the way you phrased it in terms of getting them to think. What could you do? Because I think there is a huge piece of that awareness um, that's attached to kind of empowerment when you get students to understand. Because a lot of times it's the well. Uh, if it's an issue with a teacher, well, this teacher did this and we're pointing fingers and we're acknowledging all of these things that ultimately we don't have control over. But when you start to get students to reflect on, okay, what part did I play in this? What, what did I do here? That awareness piece of like, man, if I think back, X, Y, Z happened in the morning before I even walked into school. So I was already frustrated. And when I walked into that class, that teacher asked me to do one simple thing. And really, it wasn't a big deal, but I kind of exploded because I was already at my max when mm -hmm. it comes to stress that I could handle in the moment. But when you get them to reflect on that and realize, but I'm in control of that. I'm in control of saying like, I just need a break for a second. Um, it's empowering. And that's what you want for kids. You want them to recognize what are the controllables? What do I have control over? And what choice do I want to make that will best serve me in the future? And in some ways you're teaching them like personal accountability and responsibility, right? You're Absolutely. saying um, you, you have agency in this. You don't have to just say, well, I was mad and you did the last thing that made me even matter. You, you have a responsibility to yourself and to everyone around you to manage yourself. Absolutely. It's so funny you say agency because I'm reading this book right now called The New School Rules and it talks about um, two different mindsets, the mindset of the agent or the mindset of the subject where I'm being acted upon. Mm -hmm. I have no control. It's the fact that this teacher doesn't like me or this didn't work out in my favor and we want to point fingers as opposed to um, seeing it as an agent point of view where what can I do here? Can I go to that teacher and say, you know what, we seem to be struggling right here. How can we be better? Or what can I do here to better serve what I'm trying to accomplish in your classroom. And I love that. I think that's I think that's important for kids. I think that's important for adults. Um, a lot of what we talk about with our specific SEL curriculum are skills that Mr. Henry says it best. He says, you know, they call them soft skills, but I call them hard skills. And they're skills that we, even as adults, 
are having to work on. And man, I would kill to have started learning that and practicing that when I was a kid so that it wasn't so difficult as an adult. Yeah, so I think about that a lot too. I mean, it, it's it's funny because I think back to my elementary school and middle school and high school experience, I definitely would have benefited from an, an intentional uh, method of someone saying to me, Jason, think, think about these <laughs> things, think through these things, put, put your emotion over here for a moment and try to identify what that is and think through that. Um, because you do, before you develop those skills, you, you, you can think and lead with emotion. And generally, you're not going to make the best decisions in that situation. And you said it, uh, a lot of us don't start doing that real work until we're into adulthood. And so really what we're trying to do is bring this back down to childhood and, and it, even at a very early age, teach kids how to, how to manage their emotions, identify their emotions, and, and not let them control their actions, but, but to be part of how they think through things, right? Oh, absolutely. And I really think we've been doing it for a lot longer than we realized. We just didn't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the pushback for SEL is just not fully understanding what it is, um, hearing social emotional learning. And for the most part, I think you can kind of get an idea of what it means. But I think maybe there are some misconceptions in terms of it completely taking away from academic content or like it is some giant lesson. And I know right now, especially after COVID, there's that feeling of pressure. Um, You hear the phrase learning loss a lot, um, which I struggle with anyways. But um, I think that people just don't fully understand that the social emotional learning, a lot of it's attached to executive functions, which is important in the real world. It's important in your life. Um, When you start talking about time management, you talk about prioritizing things that's attached to that being proactive, all of these skills that kids need to be able to do the academic work. It's its all intertwined. It's not something completely separate. Um, I was reading an article the other day and it was talking about social emotional learning and it said it might be non-academic, but that doesn't mean it's non-cognitive. And we're aware that those cognitive processes, you need those for learning. You need those for attention. You need those for recall. There, are, There's um, specific work out there with cognitive coaching that I know a lot of educators believe in. Um, and that goes with the learning process. And that's a part of that executive function in those SEL curriculums as well. So I'm really curious about this because you're talking about executive function. And I, and I love that part of the conversation because we always talk about uh, preparing students for the workforce, right? But part of that is that executive function is what leads an eventual a student who will, may eventually be in the workforce, most likely will be in the workforce, to make the decision that um, I will get up and go to work today, even though um, I'm weighing whether to stay up really late one night before <laughs> versus yes. my need to get up and go to work the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm weighing my anger with the situation at work and maybe telling my boss off versus maybe waiting to have a reasoned conversation. So when we're teaching these things in school, eventually that's going to translate into a better workforce, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, And I don't know how familiar you are with Dr. Watson's work that he's done with Kansans Can here, but they're part of the, or I would say one of the bigger reasons for the push for SEL was he had a whole committee that went out and um, surveyed, talked with businesses all across Kansas of what do you need to see? Because ultimately, and that's one of the things that I take the most pride in with Kansas public education, 
is that we care about kids beyond a test score. We care about them beyond graduation. Our, our job is not done if they graduate and then they can't be employable human beings, right? We mm-hmm. want them to be productive, successful human beings in society. And that doesn't just stop at graduation. So um, they have what they measure, which is post-secondary success, which looks into, okay, once our kids graduate, are they getting jobs? Are they holding down jobs? Are they getting, are they going into college? Are they getting um, industry certificates? All of these things, because ultimately that's what public education is for, is to build these kiddos up to be successful adults, to give them everything they need to go on and contribute to society in a meaningful way. Um, And so what Dr. Watson did was he went across Kansas and interviewed all of these people, business owners and industry owners, and asked, what do you need from these kiddos? And it wasn't academic content. It wasn't, um, we have a longstanding joke um, with a former principal at Hutch High who also taught math. And uh, there's another administrator that would send him a text every once in a while and said, another day passed and I didn't use Y equals MX plus B. You know, um, (laughs) so as a former math teacher, that always kind of kills me just a little bit. But it's true because when you look at the academics, um, there's always a reason for it. There's a reason for what you're learning. But at the same time, you think about a lot of jobs out there, they're not going to give them a quiz over all of the content, the academic content mm-hmm. that they've learned. What they're, They will train you for those jobs, but it's those soft skills, the ability to show up to work every day, the ability to manage conflict between employees, all of those different things. That's what they need from these kiddos. Um, and so in my mind, pushing for that SEL curriculum, that's in responsiveness to what the job, what the workforce is looking for. That's how we make our kids employable. Um, I think it's crucial so that they're successful way beyond what we track within mm-hmm. our buildings, way beyond what's published in newspapers as whether our school is successful or not. And and, and you're basically saying that the that the business community ask for schools to teach what's being taught, uh, and in particular SEL. They they want this sort of thing being taught. So that by the time they come into the workforce, they're not having to deal with so much of this kind of instability in the workforce. Absolutely. Okay. You, you had another thing that, that you mentioned about, and that really stood out to me, was about the if we go to a doctor and we treat the symptoms and we never actually – and it's funny to me because there are certain analogies that people can really understand, right? Like people get frustrated if they go to a doctor – and the doctor is just treating the symptoms or the pain or whatever, but the problem persists. And do you feel like what we're doing now is is more in line of trying to get to the root of things? We talked about that a little bit before, but um, maybe maybe moving more towards a uh, finding the source problem and addressing that instead of just trying to basically compel people to ignore the symptoms and stay in this lane and not get out of that. Oh, absolutely. I would say that's the biggest reason we're looking at SEL. You have, I mean, we're still, you and I talked about this, we'll never fully know um, all of the repercussions or all of the things we're still dealing with from COVID and all of the precautions we had to take. Um, And I think a lot of that is you have kiddos who didn't experience school in a normal way for a couple years and so you're seeing behaviors because it's new and it's different um you are seeing behaviors or you're seeing different things that you wouldn't necessarily expect in a school setting but at the same time it also is this man i wonder what's going on and i think that's 
I think when you have adults in a building whose goal is to figure out what is actually causing this, it makes it a million times easier. And I hate to say it because it sounds so sterile, but to extinguish that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. The goal is not, I'm going to shame you into compliance. When you look at um, books on leadership and talking about team management and stuff, that's very much how I see school. And we talk about commitment over compliance. Mm -hmm. Compliance is I'm not thinking on my own. I'm doing what you tell me to do. And that's not, we don't want compliant learners. We want committed learners. We want learners who feel like this is a family, who feel like I take pride in what I do in this building. And a lot of times that pride will seep into what they do beyond the building that pride will go into what they're doing in the community, how they handle themselves. Um, And that's the goal. We want them to be committed to their learning. We want them to be committed to their success. Compliance is never the goal. And to be frank, a a compliance-based system is more about making life easier for the adults in the room, right? I mean, if we have a bunch of compliant people in a room, and we don't have to put in the effort to understand what is causing the behaviors, and we don't have to put in time to address the underlying behaviors and issues, but we make them compliant. The The issues still exist, and they get worse, and they develop uh, in different ways over time. But we can make them compliant, and, and generally what I think we've found is that uh, compliance just keeps people, well, it encourages people to hide their their problems and their behaviors until they reach a boiling point and then they erupt in very sometimes very bad ways right absolutely yeah absolutely and you want kiddos to be independent thinkers you want to foster that independent thinking that creative thinking Um, that's where the good stuff happens that's Mm -hmm. where we have our innovators we have our world problem solvers when they can think independently and when you are so focused on compliance and that's not to say you don't hold them to those expectations. It's not to say that you don't want them to follow rules that you have in place for safety, that you have in place to make sure everyone can learn. Um, but it also, there you can see it in kiddos, the difference when they're being compliant, they're being forced to do this and they're sitting there stone-faced and eyes glazed over, and when they're actually committed and engaged in what's going on. Um, and absolutely, the goal is that we want them committed and engaged. And overall, we're going to get better productivity. We think we think we'll get better productivity out of them as adults. Oh, absolutely. That's it's attached to that intrinsic motivation. I would say if a kiddo is committed to what you're doing in your building or your room, your lesson, whatever the goal is, if they're committed, they're also intrinsically motivated. And that's that's hard sometimes, especially when it's content that they're not overly excited about. But that intrinsic motivation, or at least the discipline to hold yourself accountable for what you need to do in that moment. That's that commitment you want as opposed to compliance, sit down, be quiet, and listen to what I have to say. It's interesting. So, And I struggle with that as a mom because sometimes <laughs> I'm like, ooh, I would really kill for some compliance well, right now. <laughs> I mean, there is there is the whole thing, right? Like, I, I, it's just so interesting because I know the kind of kid I was and I heard the, you know, I'm, I'm the parent. You know, why, why? I had more why questions than anyone should have ever had to answer. <laughs> um, but I was curious. And so I had questions about everything. And eventually I would, you know, fatigue people and they would just say, because I'm, I'm the adult, right? <laughs> because I said so. Because I said so. <laughs> um, and that never satisfied me. And the irony, I'm thinking about myself, is if you explain to me why something needed to happen or exist, I was going to be more compliant. Right. I was more resistant if you didn't 
offer some reasonable explanation about why this needed to happen. I, I, I was I was that kid. I was very hard. It was very hard for me to. Uh, you just tell me something, and I would accept it. I wanted to know why. But if I did, if I felt like you were dealing with me in good faith, and you told me why, and it didn't seem like it was wrapped in mystery or or dishonesty, I would be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I think I imagine we probably see that with kids today too. Oh, absolutely. Um, what I really appreciate about Mr. Henry, our head principal, is he will say, you know, if I can't explain to a kid the reason why we have a rule, then we shouldn't have that rule. Um, an example would be, this This was coined before I got to HMS 7, and I always thought it was so funny. They say CAFUTI, um, and it's an acronym for keep your hands and your feet to yourself. Uh, and that's an easy one. You know, mm-hmm. we tell, for whatever reason, seventh graders are like little magnets to each other. They're constantly touching. I don't, I'm surprised every middle schooler in the world did not get COVID at one point or the other <laughs> just because of how close in contact they always are. But I'm able to say with Kafuti, you know, you guys, I have to be able to keep everyone in this building safe. And when I see you put your hands or your feet on each other, one, there's potential you could hurt each other. Two, I can't tell if you're playing around with a friend or if this is going to turn into a fight. Three, maybe you are playing around and then maybe someone gets just a little bit too rough and then we're fired up and there's a fight. So we're going to need you to keep your hands and your feet to yourself so that I can make sure everyone's safe here. And I'm telling you, I've probably said that spiel like 80 times this year. Um, but every time I met with, okay, Mrs. Evans, I understand. Yeah. Um, and it's it really is that simple the majority of the time. Just tell them why. And if you can't say why, maybe that's not the right thing to be asking of them in the first place. Yeah, maybe if you can't explain it, you should re-examine it, right? <laughs> That's for another day. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of other things that that I wanted to get into a little bit. Um, Life's been pretty hard for teachers in the last couple of years. Um, And there's been a lot of reporting on, frankly, people leaving the industry. And some of that's driven, I think, by the kind of the misconceptions about what's happening inside of a school building. And that translating into... um, somewhat aggressive policies that are coming down from uh, s- state levels, um, changes in school boards that are that where they're becoming a little more intrusive into the educational process. Um, if you can, talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges that teachers are facing in, in the building. Sure. I, I actually love that you brought that up. I'm not overly excited about it. Um, but yeah, I would... As you're well aware, all educators get into it for the money. Um, with yeah, <laughs> right, it's, right. It, it, educators are known for becoming famously <laughs> exactly, wealthy. Exactly, exactly. Um, I see they're right alongside. I think uh, there's a teacher that has more Twitter followers than Kanye West. I think. <laughs> goals all the goals um no it's it's hard because i would say the majority of your educators they get into it because they love kids and so the way you talked about school boards you said it just stuck out to me and school boards getting a little bit more intrusive um i have a hard time with that just because come in the buildings come in and see you know when you talk about the parents bill of rights and you look at what that actually has done all of those rights that that specific bill is protecting was already there Mm -hmm. they parents all they had to do was ask call come into the building anytime all of those rights were there but some additional things that it added that actually makes educators' lives a little bit more difficult in terms of getting to know kids. Um, the thing that just really sticks out to me is the requirement on surveys. Um, so there's a piece in there where it requires 
written consent, and I know I'm going to butcher this and the details, but basically students have to get, or teachers have to get written consent from parents before they give any type of survey to kids. And as someone not in education, you would think, oh, that's not a bad idea. That's really not terrible. But when you're in education, I remember a couple of teachers talking about how frustrating that was and how concerned they were with what they were going to do moving forward because you have your teachers who teach reading. Mm -hmm. So for example, it's really pretty common practice to give a reading interest survey because it's... You're trying to create a baseline of what you're dealing with with the students, right? Yeah, well, or even, you know, you want kids to love reading, and so it's really important to find out their interests, things Mm -hmm. they're interested in, so that you're providing them with material that it's like, man, I love sports. I would love to read about Kobe Bryant. Well, now that specific piece of um, legislation, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that properly. (laughs) That specific piece of legislation now requires that before they can get to know the student, in that way before they can find out their interests, a parent has to provide written consent that they're okay with that. Well, I would love to be able to sign a paper at the beginning of the school year that says you get to know my kiddo as much as you need, absolutely. Um, however, within that legislation, it's also written that that written consent has to be different for each survey you're providing and it has to be provided within a certain window. So prior to that legislation, what we would do during enrollment would be parents would sign a form that says, yep, you can do those surveys with my kiddos. It'd be done and over with and a teacher could get to know the kids the way they're intended to. Um, and now it's just making it even more difficult. So we're pushing for personalized learning we're pushing for get to know our kiddos but we're also making it more difficult for you to do so um and i think educators are a little bit frustrated with that we saw such a quick 180 done from covid where it was we are so appreciative of what you do we recognize how important what you do is god please just send our kids back to school we want them in there so bad and then it's the shift but we don't trust what you're doing in there um and i I truly think there's positive intent there. I just think that maybe there wasn't a full understanding of everything that was written in that legislation. Um, So the support that it garnered from parents that read it and thought, oh, a parent bill of rights, absolutely. I would Mm -hmm. love to have rights when it comes to my kids' education. It already existed. Um, It's the minor, the fine writing that makes it a little more difficult. Well, even on the survey piece that you said that at the beginning of the year, you know, your parents would sign and say that my kids could do, you could survey my kids. And and there was an opt-out option, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. They could, they could say, well, I don't like that. Absolutely. But now you have to do a survey every time the topic changes, right? Mm-hmm. You, have, you have to renew that and basically send a per- permission slip home, which is probably... I, I'll say it so you don't have to. Probably going to stay in the bottom of the the book bag. Oh, I'll say it too. I I am a terrible parent when it comes to things like that. We've got lost library books. I think I have a newsletter from last school year and Isabella's backpack stuff. <laughs> I'm horrible at that, and not because I'm not well intentioned. Life is busy. Oh, there's a lot, and I recognize yeah. that. And I know parents have life that's busy, and I think a lot of them would consent to those things. But you get caught up in everyday life chaos so i i get that side of it too that's not i'm that's not a knock on parents because i'm right there with them (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's always i mean life is busy and i think we sometimes don't give enough uh credence to like how much effort it takes to just keep two small children going and functioning (laughs) so much work so so talk to me a little bit about this and and you you hit on it and i want to expand on a little bit more um there's there's no there's no wall between a school building and the parents. I mean, if the parents want to come talk to the administration, they want to come talk to teachers. 
they can do that. There, there's, there's, teachers are open to that. They welcome it. There's really nothing that's standing in the way of that, is there? Other than the aforementioned time and struggle <laughs> of raising children. Oh, absolutely. I think everyone's life is busy, so I understand that piece of it. But no, absolutely. We we would love that. We would love to have parents in there. We actually have a wonderful parent who, um, for a long time at HMS 7 and HMS 8, there hasn't been a PTO, but we have a parent who's kind of spearheading that, which I'm so grateful for. Um, I think what's hard about it is I have always throughout my career thought of, and I know that majority of educators would feel that way too, that um, families and educators are working together. You're Mm -hmm. on the same team. Um, And I think there is kind of this feeling with this parent's bill of rights that it's us versus them. Mm -hmm. And that's so far from it. Um, As a mom of a kiddo that goes to school, I'm able to use some of the things he learns with his pretzel breeding, breathing to help him regulate. Like I'm using things that he's doing at school when it comes to my parenting. And that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. That's how it 100% should be. I do think it's a little bit difficult um, with family nights and different things having to be postponed or canceled for a while because of COVID. But you're starting to see that more. We have several elementaries that have all kinds of family nights and things. And we're building that back in. Um, but it's like the timing of this parents bill of rights is just terrible because it's after you couldn't have visitors within school as a safety measure and all of these things that were specific to a global pandemic but that's not how public schools have always operated and the goal is to get back to kind of opening those doors whenever possible and wanting those family connections and those ties um so i think that bill is kind of introduced at kind of a cruddy time in terms of we've we've always had that for you covid just put a put a halt on you coming in the building, if and, that makes sense. Yeah, and you're getting to the place where, and, and actually now are, right? You're, oh, absolutely, it's yes. Pretty, it's open, there's no no restrictions, there's no... You just have n- to sign in. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a, that's a common safety thing that's been around for years. I think even when my kids were little, that was a, a common thing mm-hmm. that you had to sign in because it's, as a parent, it's probably, you like the idea that people know who's in the building with your (laughs) children, right? Absolutely. I also, I'll give a quick little plug to you. I have so much respect for people in positions like yours who reach out and ask to come into buildings because the position you hold puts you in a place to help inform and make decisions that directly impact schools. Um, And I know that a lot of times for educators, the frustration stems from these people are in Topeka making decisions and they have no idea what's going on in our schools. And so that that is hard. I think that comes, that attributes to some of the frustration. And so this is just, I promise Jason didn't make me say this, but <laughs> that is a big shout out to you for wanting to do that and getting into schools because I think that that, um, that makes educators feel heard and that helps with retaining them in a profession that desperately needs good quality educators. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I mentioned to some a group of people on Saturday that I'm cursed with uh, the knowledge that I'm not always right. <laughs> and I'm also cursed with the knowledge that I don't know everything. So it, <laughs> I've always thought if I don't, um, I can increase my knowledge. And the quickest way to do that is to talk to people who have direct experience and knowledge in, in an area. And so I'm, I'm glad to go talk to teachers and to parents and to students about, you know, their experience. Um, I think and, – and, and then try to do things like this and maybe clear up some of the gaps in, in, in knowledge that's out there. So I, I really appreciate that. And I will <laughs> you keep You can give me the that. $20 yeah. later. <laughs> 
So, okay, so the, you, you raise a good point. We went through a, a pretty bad period of time, I think, in every major. It was in, in not in every area of life. It was a pretty bad couple of years. Um, now that we're on the back end of that, um, at least in education, what it, and it's opening back up and parents are coming back in. But do you think there's more that we can do to kind of bridge the divide? Because it feels like maybe that's what has to happen to create better understanding so there's less of this angst that's out there. So is, are there things that we think we could do to kind of bridge that a little bit and, and try to pull to try to provide more information to parents or to invite parents in more often or, or are we doing a good job of that right now? You know, I feel like I can't speak to every district or every building. For our building specifically, um, we went through the redesign process and are kind of wrapping that up, and that required a lot of input from parents. Um, our particular structure of being a seventh grade building is difficult because you have them for one year, and so being able to take their feedback and adjust and have it still be relevant to their student um, is a little bit more difficult, but we take always last year's feedback and try and put it in there. You see a lot of family nights and things like that at the elementary level, and we're looking to build that into the middle school level as well. Um, I will say that we had parent-teacher conferences last week, and we had, I want to say, around 75% attendance from that, which is incredible. That is at the secondary level. At elementary, when they schedule each individual conference, I'm sure they get a little bit higher, but 75% at a secondary level when it's kind of come and go and see Mm -hmm. your teachers, that's that is really our teachers were dead by the end of that night seeing all of those parents but it was wonderful and that's the highest rate we've had um that i've been there this is only my third year so i don't know how how much weight that holds but that's that's incredible and so i don't know that we necessarily need to change a bunch other than just being patient and waiting to see our efforts pay off um I will say there have been a lot of pushes in different buildings for making positive phone calls home and really trying to talk with parents and establish relationships prior to having to call them. Um, One thing that just really stood out to me from conferences, I had a mom stop in my office and she was about in tears. She said, Mrs. Evans, it just feels so good to hear teachers say such positive things about my kids. Like I was not expecting, she was very honest. and was like, I was expecting to be so mad at my kid when I left here. And almost every single one of his teachers was able to find a positive about him and talk with me in a positive light about him. And now he still, I mean, he still was dealing with a couple of grade issues. And after she talked about that, she said, now what can we do about his math grade? We really need to get his math grade up. And just like with anyone, if you have to deliver some type of critical feedback or there is some type of constructive criticism that has to be delivered, it's a lot more well-received, a lot better received if you can find some good along with it. Mm-hmm. And I think, I can't speak to every building, but I know my building does a wonderful job. My Our teachers are incredible at finding students' strengths. And when you're able to touch base with parents in a way that shows them, hey, I care about your kid. I'm not just calling you because he's driving me nuts and I just want to bombard you with all these negative phone calls. Um, when you can kind of establish a rapport with them that lets them know, hey, I care about your kid. If I'm calling about a negative thing, it's not because I'm frustrated and I don't like him. I see all of, all of these positive positive qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's this thing that I really want to work out. Can you give me some information? And that that just goes a million miles when it comes to building those relationships. Oh, I can I can only imagine. Because yeah, if the only call you're getting is hey your 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 kid uh, you know threw over the desk again today. You know, that's, you know, frustrating. <laughs> well, and then talk about 
SEL talk about executive function. As adults, we have to sit there and say, hey, it's this phone call. If I make this phone call 10 minutes after this happened, am I being reactive? Am I going to come out explosive and not have a productive conversation? And so referring back to those skills that we're trying to build within kids, we as adults need them too. Do you find when you teach this to kids that it does that, that it forces you to be a little little more introspective of your own behavior? (laughs) The number of times I've used myself as what we call a non-example. Here's what Mrs. Evans did that was not the right way to handle it. Now let's break it down and how could I have been better? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I reflect on my own parenting. I reflect Mr. Henry and I teach a class and so I'm able to reflect on our teaching in that way. But it's it's huge and it's so cool to watch kids kind of take for example one of the lessons we did was talking about verbalizing our feelings in a way that who we're speaking with can be receptive and we can have a productive conversation so you use this template i feel blank when you blank because blank could you please and so being able to break that down with kids say we had them write down one prompt like give me an example of when you would need to communicate your feelings and a lot of them talked about i need to communicate with a teacher i feel frustrated with um when you call me out for talking because i wasn't actually talking could you please wait and hear my side of it before you assign me a detention mm-hmm. huge right now yeah. how many middle schoolers do you hear actually speak like that I'll be honest, not a lot. And so it's good for them to be able to practice those skills so that when a situation arises, they're able to handle it in a productive way. Um, And so many times it's not handled in that way. And we get these power struggles Mm -hmm. because we're not able to communicate. You talk about um, SEL curriculum and a lot of times what it looks like at the lower level elementary is they start talking about what happens to your brain when you're dysregulated, when you're feeling these heavy emotions that make it difficult to verbalize your feelings and communicate in an effective way. And so part of that is science, right? You're Mm -hmm. learning what goes on in your brain. And when you're more aware of it, when it's happening to you, you're able to make better decisions. Um, So it's really cool just to see that play out in a building and see the benefits of it and then be able to go home as an adult and practice it myself is important too. So you're saying in there that that some of this actually affects brain architecture. Oh, right? absolutely. That, that, that if you if your reaction to everything is emotional and you, it's not thoughtful, that, that that is like the neural pathway that's carved. And yeah. that, that is the easy route to every solution to every problem versus thinking it through. If that becomes the the war, I've always been told that neural networks are kind of like paths and the, the, the more traveled paths are the, the ones that are the easiest to get down. Yes. Right. And so if the one I use the most often or I'm, I'm taught and eventually that becomes the default practice is to think through these emotions and think through this problem solving, part of what we're doing is saying, do this, do this more, and this becomes the habit so that we're not just reactive, that we're stepping back and taking this path through solving problems. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. So you'll talk, or not you'll, but they will talk a lot about where you're operating in your brain. They'll talk about when you're in the basement. Um, And so educators will go through courses um, when you talk about trauma and different things. I know we have, I am so far from the expert, but my daughter just had a teacher last year who was an incredible educator and she believes in conscious discipline and they talk a lot about the brain. My daughter could probably tell you more about her brain when she's experiencing stress than I could right now. So I'm more than likely going to butcher this, but um, you're operating in your right side of your brain when you're feeling all of those emotions. And then you go down to your brainstem and that's when your um like your fight or flight response will kick in and so you're not operating and able to make decisions consciously as you would when you're not feeling stress or feeling all of that panic 
Um, so there are different things that they will teach kids. For example, my son does pretzel breathing. And what's significant about it is he will literally cross his arms and then he will cross his feet and he brings it in and he does this breathing. But there's science that goes along with crossing your midline because once you're doing things like that, you are forcing your brain to use the left side of your brain as well, which helps regulate without even realizing it. Um, so all of these pieces that are huge and for my five-year-old to know that, yeah. holy cow, very cool. So that brings me to... Oh, gosh, don't ask me anymore. I've been so limited with that stuff. I think it's wonderful. Well, I think you'll be able to do this once because teaching kids things like that, things that me as a five-year-old, such a foreign concept, it's not not even on my radar to, to think about activating another part of my brain. So let's talk about kids these days. Right. And I'll put that in air quotes. Right. (laughs) Uh Because that's like the common thing. Like, oh, kids these days. And one of the things that I always um, I'll I'll throw my own uh, thoughts in here, which I usually try to avoid to some degree. Um, Every generation, it seems, looks at the next generation and says, "Ugh, kids these days. (laughs) Right. They did it when I was a kid. We were all slackers. And. We weren't ever going to stop wearing flannel shirts, and that is to some degree true. Um, <laughs> it's fall, it's okay. <laughs> but the idea was um, ugh, every generation looks at this younger generation and says, ugh, kids these days. And I always point out, kids don't raise themselves. If you're really unhappy with the next crop of kids, it's probably to some degree the fault of the people who raised them, mm-hmm. right? Um, but look, with all of these tools that are at the disposal of kids and all these things that are being kind of, you know, used and taught and, 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 the, and the things that kids have now to kind of regulate, think things through a little better. Uh, what do you see in this next generation of kids? Cause you, you're dealing with the, the kind of the, the muddy middle of all of this, right? <laughs> yeah. The ax sprayed middle. Yeah. Um, I would say unlimited potential. Honestly, I I remember going through 2020 and I remember watching kids. I mean, adults obviously had to shift the way they were teaching when we went remote and all of these things. But man, I watch kids be resilient. I watch kids figure out how to do those things. And was it a struggle? Absolutely. But I watched our Hutch High kids figure out how to do a parade down Main Street. So they still had some type of graduation um, celebration. And I truly, I just see unlimited potential. I think you and I had talked about missing that feeling of um, like you couldn't be defeated. Nothing mm-hmm. was going to hurt you. And I think that kiddos, at that, that comes with a certain age they're at. You're invincible when you're a teenager. You know everything. Um, but also when they're equipped with the tools to really figure out how to communicate, to figure out how to problem solve. I think the kids to come are going to be incredible. Like I I truly feel there is no better job, no more, no more fulfilling job than what I have now because I truly am working with the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, are there issues? Absolutely, because they're kids. And I guarantee you they're the same issues that were 30 years ago. They just didn't have social media for it to be blasted mm-hmm. the way it is now. Um, but I, I genuinely mean that when I say unlimited potential. And that's why I feel... A lot of us have that sense of urgency to give them these tools to figure out 
how can we make them, how can we help them build that self-awareness of this isn't a great day. I really need to make sure that I take some time to breathe before this class or, you know, I'm a little bit frustrated right now. I need to pause and wait to address this issue in 10 minutes so that they can communicate effectively. Because if you sit down and have a conversation with a lot of these kids, the way their brains work is incredible. The Mm -hmm. way they think is incredible. And if you can keep that curiosity that they have as a kid, if you can grow that, God, these kids are going to solve some serious problems someday. Well, because they come out with the idea that you know that they have the tools and the and the curiosity and the inventiveness to to look at these things without without constraint, really. Absolutely. Right? That yeah, that's kind of that's what I see when I when I have the chance to to visit with students, uh, which isn't as often as you, but <laughs> but but I do sometimes, and I, I'm really kind of taken aback by. The way they think, and I always end up feeling like pretty hopeful about about the future. And I, I don't walk away with that sense of, oh, you know, kids. <laughs> because I mean, kids are. You're right. Kids are kids, and they have. They do have a lot. Of, you mentioned social media, and I just think I am so so thankful that that was not really a thing when oh, I was young. Absolutely. Because absolutely. I, it would have been. A, I, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. And so. I'm starting to like as you're talking I'm drawing connections between like the need to emotionally regulate and think through things and how that applies to social media so that I'm not reacting in this public space right which we have some adults that don't do that very well <laughs> and they could maybe maybe we can create an adult class an adult SEL class for people and I, I would take it <laughs> I would enroll in it I would take it too most, most of it call us therapy <laughs> And that's going to be private. That's not put out there. I think a lot of times people are resistant to change because it's unknown, but also because they feel like maybe that change discredits what they had already done or what they'd experienced. So, for example, you have adults or parents who are resistant to this SEL. um, One, because they don't know what it is. They don't have a full understanding of what it is. But also, two, it's almost like a knock saying, are you trying to say that I'm not a functioning adult. I think I'm doing just fine. I didn't have that in school, you know, but also how we were just talking about social media. You look at really the importance of covering digital citizenship with Mm -hmm. kids. What, what does it look like when you are online? What are you putting out there? How long a lot of schools will talk about your digital footprint. What you put out there is out there. Um, that wasn't needed Mm -hmm. 30 years ago in school, but it's a need now. Schools need to be able to adapt and be responsive to the society that they're putting kiddos out into. Um, So being able to understand that doesn't discredit the work that educators have done prior to SEL being formalized. It doesn't discredit the schooling that adults in the world had prior to it. Um, It's just adapting to changing needs, and that's what we need. If we were to be so stagnant, so set in what we're teaching kids, by the time these kids graduate with the way advances are made in technology and all of that, it's going to be irrelevant anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to teach them to think critically, to be able to adjust, to be able to regulate themselves in environments that are different because it's guaranteed the world's going to be different by yeah. the time they graduate. So, I, I'm really glad that you said that, uh, particularly about the kind of people not only – having some fear because they don't understand what it is, but also feeling that it's some invalidation of their their life. And I think that's an important point to raise because I do hear that sometimes, or, I, or at least get that sense from people. Um, and I think, and I don't think I'm wrong in this, I think when I when you think back, probably everybody could identify 
even in an era where we weren't teaching anything like SEL in any formal way, there were probably teachers in their experience, in their educational experience, who did this on a personal level. I mean, I know that was the case for me. Um, so there, there were teachers who knew this and understood this and who were working with, with, with children on it and trying to walk them through, like, how, how could we do this better? How could we think this through? Um, even though it may not have been a formal part of the curriculum, right? Oh, absolutely. And so I'll refer back to when we talked about it being a common language. Now we're going to be able to do that more effectively because now we're on the same page. Now we're all using the same verbiage when we're addressing a situation so that when I get a kiddo two years removed from a class where he's discussed that and I use that same language proactive, I use that same um, verbiage to address a situation that's popped up you can do it more effectively because he's already been exposed to that. It's not, what is Mrs. Evans talking about? It's, oh yeah, I remember now. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes absolute sense. Um, anything else happening in education that, that people ought to know about or any other kind of myths that are out there that we can demystify here? <laughs> Put me on the spot. Um, no, just come in. Um, it's really, I will say this though, I think accountability is always twofold. I think it would be very easy to be educators and say, you don't know what's happening. You have to come in here. And I think it would be very easy to be the general public and say, you don't tell us what's happening. You need to communicate better. And I think both sides have some room to give in terms of we as educators, if we're frustrated about the pushback on SEL, if we're frustrated about what is being put out there, we kind of have a responsibility to put the stuff out there. We have a responsibility to make sure the public knows this is what we're doing and it's really great stuff. Um, and so I would say that more than anything, we just have to make sure that we are opening up our buildings, that we are putting out there all the good stuff we're doing. And I think in 308, we have some incredible educators, some incredible administrators who do a great job of that. Um, I just think we need to keep doing that. We see, we see some issues and some hot topics and some school voucher issues and things like that that get you a little bit concerned because I don't think people fully understand what that means mm -hmm. and the very serious ramifications something like that could have on education and on kids. Um, so I would just very much encourage people to be informed. Yeah, and, and again, it's a, at the core of it, parents and educators, are they have the child at the center, the student at the center of everything, and, and both of them want the same outcome, which is a, a child who goes through the school system and comes out healthy, well-adjusted, and prepared for the world ahead. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So talking about the importance of like kind of emotional regulation and, and some of those tools and some of the tools that we've you know, maybe had to work on in adulthood that are being taught to students, I, I want to bring up the, your husband's accident, and and that was a, the community really kind of came together for you guys. But I know that the the last year has has been difficult and and rough. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, you want to talk about the importance of social emotional learning and all the tools that we're trying to give kids. There were several times I felt like I was utilizing what we were teaching kids. Um, just for me to be able to get through my day, trying to make sure that I was handling business when the stress I was experiencing was different than I'd ever experienced before. But at the same time, 
that was my kids too. You know, I think when we talk about social emotional learning and I think everyone kind of builds this picture of the kiddo that they think needs that. And it's not my kid, right? It would never be my kid because I provide a great home. They have a good life. They're loved at home. They go to school. They don't need that stuff. It's only a select few kids who need that. But I think last year really taught me that, man, even my own kids, I feel like I'm an okay mom, but even my kids were experiencing some trauma. They were experiencing some things they were having to work towards. And knowing that they were in classrooms where teachers understood that, teachers knew about my kids beyond their test scores, mm -hmm. and they were able to help them work through that as well was huge. Um, but at the same time, for me as an adult, I still needed that too. And so when I think about the SEL curriculums and what we're pushing for kids in classrooms, it's, I promise you, it's every kid that needs to learn that, that it's not discriminated by how much their family household income is. It's not discriminated by race. All of these kids need to learn how to regulate themselves. They're all going to experience stress, no matter how much as we as parents want to prevent that. It's inevitable. It really is. Not, not maybe to the extent that my family experienced it last year, but there, there's going to be tough times. They're going to run into tough times. And so giving them the tools, even if they haven't experienced it yet, to work through that stuff mm -hmm. um, is huge. And so last year was one of the, probably one of the most humbling times in my life to realize that my kiddos are kiddos who need to learn that too. Um, humbling in terms of, man, I need to learn that. I'm being really reactive right now. I'm having trouble regulating my emotions um, only solidified the importance of that within our buildings for me. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, well, like you said, you, you have, you know, you're, you were both, you're both educators, um, both, uh, stable family in a stable family, it, 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 but unfortunately we just never know what life is going to give us. And, and it does kind of speak to having those tools. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you, you had told me some things earlier about the way uh, you guys kind of made some adjustments in your life and, and how that there's a tie-in to school and there's a tie-in to community on that. Can you share that story? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we figuring out, so last summer, I knew the second um, they told us Clayton's injury and kind of what to anticipate. Our home is beautiful home um, over on 20th Avenue. It was two-story and it just wasn't going to work. Um, even modifications and things, we were just going to have to let it go, which I I loved it. We had a 100th birthday party for it because it was just old mm -hmm. and historic and wonderful. Um, but I just knew it wouldn't work. Now, what we have at Hutchinson and the CTA is a building trades program. And every year they build a home. Um, and it was in July when I called Travis Revel, our director, and thought it was a long shot. I was just trying to figure out something. We needed to have something to work towards. It was really difficult to know um, Clayton's injury and kind of what that would look like in the future and not even be able to picture a home to bring him home to. I knew it'd be a while until we could bring him home, but I needed I needed that visual of where we were going to go. Um, and so I was able to reach out to Travis Rebel at the CTEA. He's the director over there and asked, you know, if we put the home that you guys will build this school year under contract, can we make sure it's wheelchair accessible? Can we design it so that Clayton can get around and it will work for our family? Um, and it was funny because I called him kind of in a panic, just like, oh, I have this thought. I'm going to call him right away and then kind of forgot about it because there were so many other things going on. We were trying to get airlifted to Colorado to get to the rehab facility that he would be at. So I, I just honestly kind of lost it for a while. And then ironically enough, on the day that we had his full team meeting and got 
news that didn't necessarily surprise us, but news that just made it real for mm-hmm. us. Really, um, just an emotionally heavy day. Travis calls me and says, hey, Melissa, like got everything approved. We need to talk floor plans. And so it was just this bright light. And we have held on to that um, this entire time that it's our students that built this home. There are so I mean, obviously, the situation is not ideal. If if I could make Clayton walk again, I wouldn't a heartbeat. Um, But so much good has come out of it. We've seen so many incredible things in our community. Our school has been highlighted in such a positive way that that's probably one of the biggest blessings. Um, We are actually coming up October 15th was the day I brought him home. And we were just talking about um, when we got home and going straight to Graver to surprise Isabella and what an incredible Mm -hmm. moment that was. And then going just across the parking lot to Circle Drive at Hachai. Anyone who's been at Hachai knows Circle Drive. Uh Um, And Clayton being able to go around the circle and have the whole student body there cheering. It was just the probably one of the coolest moments of my life. So it's been it's been really cool to go home every day to a house that is perfect for our family, built by our students. I don't know that I could ask for anything better. I can't think of anything better. <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's you know if you could go back and change things, but in knowing that you can't, having that kind of connection with your students and 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 living in with that every day is it, that has to feel pretty good it is and they are actually building uh right next to our house this year so every once in a while we'll be there when they're building and they're all waving <laughs> well thank you for coming on today and uh visiting with me and really getting pretty in depth on on a lot of these things and kind of like explaining what's happening i think it's really important to have those conversations with people and with people in the in the in the field and for people outside to understand what's actually happening and and the reasons why right absolutely (laughs) i appreciate your willingness to learn thank you for asking me i know there are probably far more people out there way more versed in all of this but i feel like if i'm going to say we need to do a better job of putting this information out there then i got to kind of walk the walk too so i appreciate you having me there you go that's that sounds like an open invitation for anyone i ask to also say yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you i'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and hutch possible my son mitchell probst wrote and recorded the music for the show Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.